0: Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Adam Hochschild about his new book, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. Adam is a journalist who has reported for American magazines from five continents and the author of 11 books. He has won the Penn USA Literary Award, the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and the Theodore Roosevelt Woodrow Wilson Award of the American Historical Association. Adam, welcome to That Said. Thank you, Michael. So tell us about yourself.
1: Well, uh, I was born a New Yorker, but I've lived in California most of my life. And I think a lot of what I've done with my life was influenced by coming of age in the 1960s. It was the period of the rebirth of the civil rights movement. My then girlfriend, now wife, and I were briefly civil rights workers in Mississippi. I was very much involved in the movement against the Vietnam War because the choice of whether to fight or not in that was a choice that faced all the men in my generation because we had the draft at that time. And I think that had a huge influence on me. And then in later years, when I started writing history, I found that I was really drawn to writing about times like the 1960s, in a way, where there were movements for social justice. And so social justice and human rights issues have been mostly what I've been drawn to write about.
0: And that, I guess, answers the second question I have for you, which is why this book and why this period of time?
1: Well, the period of the United States about a 100 years ago is one that has long fascinated me for a couple of reasons. One is that the worst of it usually gets left out of standard high school history textbooks. And I'm always interested in ways in which countries mythologize their history, what they choose to leave out and not concentrate on it was also a time which saw, I think, the worst assault on civil liberties in the United States since the end of slavery. And given that we've just lived through a time, the Trump presidency, when there was a lot of talk about uh, the media is the enemy of the people, the need to shut down dissent, the need to deport thousands or millions of people from the United States— I became increasingly fascinated by this period a century ago when they did a lot of those things. When Trump ran for president in 2016, for example, his followers uh, chanted, lock her up, lock her up about Hillary Clinton. Woodrow Wilson, who was president a century ago, did lock up one of his opponents uh, in, uh, in an earlier presidential race. Eugene Debs, the socialist candidate for president who received nearly a million votes in uh, 1912, was sent to prison for 10 years for speaking out against American participation in the First World War. Many, many other people were sent to prison as well. Trump talked about the media as the enemy of the people, but the Wilson administration in effect shut down some 75 critical newspapers and magazines. So that and much more happened during this very nasty period of 1917 through 1921. And I thought it was worth a book examining it carefully. You write that your hope was that by closely
0: examining the period from 1917 to 1921, we would have a better understanding of the toxic undercurrents of racism, nativism, red baiting and contempt for the rule of law that flowed through American life for too long. Never, used Ed was the raw underside of our nation's life more revealingly on display during this critical time period, 1917 to 21, and is all but forgotten. So why forgotten? Why? I mean, this really was an assault on democracy like we've never seen before.
1: Why is it forgotten in your mind, Adam? I think every country and other countries that I've written about show the same thing, like to provide an upbeat period of their history. So in the United States, we concentrate on things like the founding fathers who had this brilliant idea for a new nation that would be based on the rule of law with a wonderful constitution that had the separation of powers and checks and balances We concentrate on them. We concentrate on the greatest generation that won World War II. We tend to skip over or downplay the bad stuff. And that's what interests me, what gets left out, what gets ignored, how even the greatest intentions, and there are a lot of great things about the American Constitution, get completely discarded in a moment of stress. That's what happened to this country a century ago.
0: You wrote a great line. You said that the typical American history book has students learning in one chapter that the U.S. was neutral at the start of World War I. Then Germany sunk our U.S. ships with their submarines. And so we went to war. We won the war. We celebrated with victory parades. And then we started the Roaring Twenties. But what was going on, this assault on democracy, which is the primary thesis of the book, is left out of history books and it brings to mind, of course, the current debate around critical race theory and, and other accurate teachings of American history. You see the parallels there being so obvious.
1: Oh, I do. I think at every moment in American history, large numbers of people don't want to look at the history of our country critically, and we always have had certain currents running through American life. One is racism. You know, the Black population of this country was almost entirely enslaved until the time of the Civil War. We're still dealing with the aftermath of that, and we're still dealing with a lot of attitudes which have remained from that period. We've also been a country that has had uh, successive waves of anti-immigrant feelings, you know today of course those feelings which trump tried to capitalize on are directed mainly against people from latin america trying to come over the southern border a century ago it was quite different there was very little immigration from latin america instead the anti-immigrant feeling was on the part of white americans whose ancestors had come from places like in northwestern europe like uh, the british isles holland germany and so on They were deeply upset with the waves of immigrants coming, starting in 1890 or so, from Southern and Eastern Europe. In other words, Italians, Poles, and Jews, who were not yet fully white, so to speak, in American eyes. And ire was directed against them tremendously and often violently. So that's another constant in American life. And yet another constant in American life is uh, tension and conflict between business and labor. A century ago, it was often quite violent. Dozens of workers were killed in labor strife each year. 1913-14 alone, more than 70 people, some of them women and children, were killed in battles between uh, local police, company detectives, and National Guard troops, and striking Colorado miners. And You know, the effort to suppress unions is still with us when we see companies like uh, Amazon and Walmart uh, trying to do everything they can to prevent their workers from organizing unions. Happily, it's not as violent today, but that struggle also is still there. So, but in this 1917 to 21 period, all three of these struggles were extremely intense, and we tend to leave that out of the standard high school history textbook.
0: You write that World War I was supposed to make the world safe for democracy, but served as an excuse for a war against democracy at home. So let's unpack that a little bit because that's the heart of, mm-hmm. of this book, the war on democracy at home. And we can't help but start with learning something about Woodrow Wilson. Who was he? Where did he come from? And let's follow
1: his trajectory through the, Life of the book? He was a fascinatingly complicated man. He's not somebody who's easy to loathe without reservation because he was a very divided personality. In many ways, uh, he was a progressive. In his first chairman office, he was admirable on issues like child labor legislation, the graduated income tax, some regulation of business. And you also have to admire his ardent enthusiasm for the League of Nations, which he was convinced that this League of Nations with the United States as the most influential country within it would prevent terrible wars like the First World War from breaking out again. In fact, I think it was a pretty improbable dream. I don't think even if the U.S. had entered the League of Nations and been an influential force within it, it would have had a any more luck at suppressing wars than the UN has been since it was formed after World War II. But nonetheless, Wilson was dedicated to this, and his dedication actually shortened his life, because when he was in ill health, he embarked on a very arduous nationwide speaking tour, promoting the League of Nations, and after an exhausting month on the road doing that, he had the first of several near-fatal strokes that put him out of commission for the rest of his presidency and shortened his life at the same time, this same man was an ardent segregationist who undid what little integration had taken place in the federal workforce by the end of his term in office. There were fewer black people working for the federal government than there had been when he came into office, and he had such an attachment to this dream of United States entering World War I and winning the war and then imposing the League of Nations on the world, that he was happy to send to prison anybody who disagreed with that. And during his time in office, the second term in office, uh, roughly a thousand Americans spent a year or more in prison and a much larger number, shorter periods of time, solely for things that they wrote or said. And I don't think that's been matched uh, in American history. Uh, he also presided over this censorship program, which he was a great enthusiast of, which, as I mentioned, in effect shut down some 75 critical newspapers and magazines. So he was a very contradictory man.
0: And I, as a lawyer, know to your point that he was a contradictory man, is that he appoints Louis Brandeis, one of the great
1: liberal justices to the Supreme Court. Absolutely, you have to give him credit for that. Also the first uh, Jewish Supreme Court justice. Yeah.
0: And there's a rest stop on the New Jersey Turnpike named after him because he was the governor of New Jersey. So that's something are that- A
1: lot of other things named after Wilson as well, and I have to admit that actually I once received a prize from the American Historical Association, the Theodore Roosevelt Woodrow Wilson Award. Uh, named after two of my least favorite presidents.
0: We have a high school here in Washington, D.C. that was named Wilson High School until this year, and now it's been changed to another name because of his uh, virulent racist policies. Remember, he was born to a father who preached that the Bible sanctified slavery and was a a chaplain to Confederate troops. I mean, that was his upbringing.
1: That's right. And that actually, as a boy uh, living in Georgia, where his father then had a congregation, he and his family witnessed Jefferson Davis as a prisoner of Union troops being marched through the streets of Augusta, Georgia on his way to prison. And they were horrified by this. And in what he wrote as a historian, uh, and he wrote some dozen books, he took a, a startlingly benign view of slavery.
0: While well, at Princeton, right? He said that slavery was not as bad as people thought and that many slaves were treated very well,
1: right? Yes. At least the house slaves were treated very well.
0: Yeah. So Wilson, after the declaration of war, World War I, really is a changed person. The reformer in him seems to give way to this crusader. And one of the things that happens, and we're still living with the legacy of it as they're still using it, is the passage of the Espionage Act of 1917. So let's talk about that, and then we'll roll into the Sedition Act of 1918. So why don't we start with The Espionage Act, and you could tell us about it, and we'll talk about
1: how it was used. Well, the Espionage Act uh, is really central to a lot of the things I was writing about in American Midnight. It was passed some weeks after the U.S. entered the First World War, and it actually had very little to do with espionage. There were roughly 2,000 people indicted under it in the next four years, but only 10 of them were actually accused German spies of any sort. There there had been a German espionage network in the United States at the start of the First World War, but it had been almost completely shut down because a German agent uh fell asleep on the New York elevated train, and the alert Bureau of Justice agent who was following him grabbed his briefcase when the man got off the train for getting his briefcase. And it had all the names of all the agents. So they'd long since arrested all these people. The Espionage Act was basically about shutting off dissent. And it allowed severe penalties, you know, of many years in prison and a high fine for people in effect who criticized the war effort. That's what they were really after. There were a lot of Americans who thought it was a bad idea for the U.S. to enter the First World War. Six U.S. senators and 50 members of the House of Representatives voted against the declaration of war. These people were mostly but not entirely on the left-hand side of the spectrum. There were both Republicans and Democrats among those politicians. There were many Americans who felt some of them from left wing convictions that you know workers of the world should not be fighting each other but should be fighting the capitalists there were others who felt this was a european quarrel the us should not be in it so there was there was considerable resistance to the war wilson was determined to shut that down and was determined to shut down publications which in any way endorsed that resistance and of course this was an era where Print was the medium of communication. There was no radio, no TV, no internet. And a very important provision of the Espionage Act was censorship. It gave that power, in effect, to the postmaster general, who could rule a publication, newspaper or magazine, unmailable. That is, it couldn't travel through the U.S. mail. Now, this didn't affect mainstream daily newspapers which for the most part incidentally fully supported the government they could be sold on street corners and delivered to people's homes but weeklies monthlies journals of opinion of all kinds and the vast majority of the country's foreign language press uh, depended on the mail so when the postmaster general declared a publication unmailable it essentially put them out of business that postmaster general was the worst possible guy to have this power. Albert Burleson, he was a former congressman from Texas, the son and grandson of Confederate veterans, an ardent segregationist. And he loved being chief censor. And for four years, he wielded this power. This was a law supposedly passed to strengthen the U.S. in fighting the war, but Burleson continued banning publications from the mail for nearly two and a half years after the war ended, until his very last day in office. Actually, and he used it to some extent for personal vendettas. For example, one of the first publications he shut down was a small socialist weekly in Hallettsville, Texas, which had criticized him several times over the years for The way he treated laborers on farmland that he owned, which he eventually ended up leasing to the Texas state prison system, which worked it with convicts wearing striped uniforms who were whipped severely when they didn't work hard enough. That was one of the first publications he shut down, but there were many more.
0: Let's talk a little bit so we get a clear sense of how this was, in your own words, a club to smash left-wing forces of all kinds. I don't know if you remember the facts of it well enough, but can you talk a little bit about Schneck uh, versus the U.S. and Abrams versus the U.S.?
1: Yeah, uh, Schenck, I think it is. Schenck, yeah. Uh, Schenck. This was a case that came before the Supreme Court originally in 1917, and lawyers hoped that if they could get it all the way to the Supreme Court, it would be a means of declaring the Espionage Act unconstitutional. The case involved a couple of members of the Socialist Party in Philadelphia who had sent leaflets protesting the draft to men who were about to be drafted, who conveniently, the local newspaper was routinely publishing the Names and addresses of young men who became eligible for the, the draft. Uh, so this leaflet was saying, you know, the draft is a bad thing. You shouldn't go and so forth. The case, they were convicted. The case eventually, uh, in early 1919, came before the Supreme Court. The lawyers and the defendants hoped that the court would use it to declare the law unconstitutional to their horror there was a unanimous decision of the court upholding the law. And Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who was one of the people in whom they had faith, uh, actually wrote that unanimous decision. And in that decision, there's this famous uh, phrase, which is uh, often quoted. Uh, I can't quote it exactly, but it goes something like, you know, free speech is free speech, but that's not the same thing as allowing somebody to shout fire in a crowded theater, which is a ridiculous analogy, because a leaflet protesting against the draft is not the same thing as causing a panic in a crowded
0: theater. Indeed, was it not this case where Holmes said of these leaflets
1: that they created a clear and present danger? That's right. That's right. Clear and present danger also comes from that, that case then a couple months later uh actually later that year uh i think 6 or 8 months later another case came before the supreme court the abrams case and this involved some young radicals in new york who had again written a leaflet actually two leaflets one in english and one in yiddish uh and they had tossed them out the window of a factory where one of this group of young people worked the leaflets were opposing American intervention in the Russian Civil War, where the U.S. uh, had sent troops to support the white forces who were trying to overthrow the Bolsheviks in Russia. And this case came before the Supreme Court. By this point, however, Holmes had changed his mind. And it's always interesting and moving, I think, to see somebody who is morally big enough to change his mind he told his fellow justices that he was going to dissent against upholding the law in this case because he had come to feel that it was a mistake, this law. They were appalled. Three of the justices actually did something almost unprecedented. They came to see Holmes at his home and tried to talk him out of making this dissent because they said, we need a unanimous decision on this, like we had on the preceding case. We know what they said, because Holmes's law clerk was listening in from the next room through a partly open door. And they told Holmes, look, you were an old soldier. He'd actually been wounded as a Union soldier in the Civil War. His sword was hanging on the wall of his study. You know, we should be united behind our country in this time of danger. Uh, Holmes said no. I still want a dissent. And Justice Brandeis joined him in that dissent. And Supreme Court dissents, of course, don't make law. But their dissent, which talked about the importance of the free marketplace of ideas, uh, has been, according to one of Holmes' biographers, the most frequently quoted uh, Supreme Court dissent in history, justifying free speech.
0: In fact, In the Abrams descent, Holmes writes, we should be eternally vigilant against attempts to check the expression of opinions we loathe. And the ultimate good desired is better reached by the free trade of ideas in the competition of the market. And what it brought to mind for me was, and I'd like your thoughts on this, the Whole discussion about censorship of content on the internet. The issue here seems to me to parallel one another, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it.
1: Boy, I'm not sure I'm ready to fully take on the internet question. It's a, it seems to me a somewhat different kettle of fish because at least when you get to social media, you have something more than just a different range of opinions being out there. I'm all for, you know, free speech and having a different range of opinions out there and people can choose among them and see whether, you know, what Donald Trump says represents my thoughts better than what Joe Biden says or what somebody else entirely says. But the The problem with social media is that they have a way, by the algorithms that they use, of closing off the opinions that don't agree with yours and funneling towards you more and more of the opinions that you share. Because, of course, these social media companies make money the longer you stay on the website of Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And you will stay there longer if you find things that reinforce beliefs you already have. How one regulates that fairly, I will leave to you lawyers.
0: Yeah. I guess what I was thinking particularly though, and that's a fair point, but I think what I was thinking particularly was the banning of former President Trump or then at the time, President Trump from Twitter. So the totally taking off of this prominent social platform, his ability to communicate through it. That
1: I didn't like. I had some hesitation about that also. I think if we could find a way of everybody's voices being there, but without that algorithm that steers towards you, the voices that you agree with and more and more extreme versions of them, then we might be able to make a sort of uh, compromise of some sort. I'll leave that to the lawyers.
0: (laughs) We'll leave that to part two. We touched upon the Sedition Act of 1918, which was essentially the Espionage Act on steroids. It was that which made the giving of disloyal advice or the uttering, printing, or publishing of any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language against the United States, a crime. And that was used by Postmaster General Burleson as the principal weapon in determining things to be unmailable,
1: right? That's right. One of the interesting things about the Sedition Act was that that wording that you just read was taken almost verbatim from a law that the U.S. Colonial Administration had passed in the Philippines nearly 20 years earlier, when at a time when the United States had just taken over the Philippines from Spain in the Spanish-American War and found itself with a huge rebellion on its hands by Filipinos who were trying to prevent their country from becoming a colony of the United States. And the U.S. passed a number of repressive laws and waged a very nasty counter guerrilla war, which went on for three years and actually continued sporadically sometime after that. One thing that utterly fascinated me as I plowed through this 1917 to 21 period was how many echoes of the Philippine War there were how many Philippine War veterans there were in the vigilante groups that flourished during this period. Just as today, when we look at the mob that invaded the Capitol on January 6th, uh, 2021, there were a lot of veterans of you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. Just as there were veterans of Vietnam in the militia movements that flourished in the United States in the 1990s. There's a way in which Overseas wars come back to haunt this country.
0: It's, in fact, a thread that we see over and over and and over, which you detail so brilliantly in the book. Before we turn to the dissenters, I'd like to spend some time talking about them. Another national treasure, he said sarcastically in the book, is Attorney General Thomas Gregory. So can you tell us about Gregory and how Gregory and Postmaster Burleson and Wilson sort
1: of was a, a troika of... of um... Well, Gregory, I think, actually wasn't quite as bad as his successor, Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, whom we should devote more time to. Gregory, like Burleson, was a Texan. They were, I believe, the first two Texans in an American cabinet. They were fishing companions. So anybody who tried to you know, go to the attorney general to use his influence to stop Burlson from censoring the mail, didn't have any luck. And he was basically a very enthusiastic enforcer of the Espionage Act. And at one point, Wilson sent him a copy of a newspaper, anti-war newspaper, tiny anti-war newspaper published in Chicago, sent it to Gregory and said, can't we do something about these people? And Gregory indeed brought some, brought a charge under the Espionage Act. But I think the really problematic attorney general was Gregory's successor, A. Mitchell Palmer, who took office in early 1919.
0: So well, let's talk about him because he did a lot of things that are worth remembering as we try to remain vigilant as a democracy. So you're right. Palmer comes on in early 19 and he and, uh, William Big Bill Flynn do some serious
1: damage. Right. Palmer, from really the get-go, and especially after Wilson had his first severe stroke in the summer of 1919, Palmer had his eye on the 1920 Democratic presidential nomination. And really, almost until the last minute, he was the front runner for that. And he decided to sort of base his campaign on the promise of deporting large numbers of people from the United States. Like Trump, a hundred years later, he sensed that this was a, would be a very popular position. Whenever the country is riled up, you know, millions of Americans, unfortunately, believe you can solve the problem by getting rid of troublemakers. And actually in this era, there are even some politicians who said, why should deporting people from the country be limited to people who are foreign born? Why not deport troublemakers of all kinds? But Palmer was concentrating on trying to deport foreign born troublemakers. And troublemakers meant people who could be charged with being associated with, you know, communist, socialist, or anarchist uh, groups. Palmer had a sort of personal connection to this because there had been a series of anarchist bombings and attempted bombings in the U.S. in the first half of 1919. One of the targets was Palmer's own house in Washington, D.C., where the bomber who was trying to destroy it actually stumbled on the front steps going in, managed to blow himself up, damaged the house, but uh, didn't harm of uh, palmer and his family but of course understandably it was very upsetting for palmer the whole country which was already in a quite riled up state because of the other conflicts going on was determined to catch these bombers they never actually did catch the bombers because the consensus of historians today is that these bombings were done by a tiny sect of anarchists known as the Galleanists, uh, of whom there were probably no more than 50 members in the United States. They were never able to prosecute these folks. But the scare created by the bombings fueled Palmer's presidential campaign. And in late 1919 and early 1920, greatly aided by one of his top assistants, a 24-year-old J. Edgar Hoover he staged what became known as the Palmer Raids, although they probably really should be called the Hoover Raids because Hoover did most of the planning. They seized about 10,000 people, radicals or alleged radicals, often roughed them up, sometimes invited newsreel photographers around to see the roughing up, and you can actually find video of this on YouTube. And many of them were found to be non-citizens and therefore deportable from the United States because the law said that uh, if you are not a citizen and you were uh, known to belong to an anarchist or radical group, you could be shipped out of the country. And Palmer hoped to base his presidential campaign on a track record record, of having deported thousands of these these troublemakers, he did manage to deport one entire shipload, some 249 people, including the famous anarchist uh, Emma Goldman and her longtime companion, Alexander Berkman, just before Christmas uh, 1919. But he was foiled in his attempt to deport large numbers of other people by a guy who was really one of the heroes of American Midnight a wonderful man Lewis F Post who was acting secretary of labor and this was an important position because even though Palmer's justice department had the ability to go out and arrest large numbers of people and did deportations had to be approved by the immigration bureau which fell under the department of labor and the Secretary of Labor was on sick leave. The man who normally would have taken his place, who was a big buddy of Palmer's, had just resigned to run for Congress. And so the third ranking person in the department, Louis Post, became Secretary of Labor. He was a staunch progressive, believer in civil liberties, not a radical, not an anarchist or a socialist, but he believed that nobody should be deported from the United States because of their political opinions. And he refused to approve these deportations. He found trouble with the arrest warrants. A lot of them had been drawn up illegally. He saved thousands of people from being deported from the United States and enraged Palmer and Hoover in this process, helped pull some of the legs out from under Palmer's presidential campaign. They tried to get Congress to impeach him. They failed in that. They got the American Legion. To demand his firing. They failed to accomplish that. And Post really helped to foil some of their plans.
0: What was so interesting about this deportation campaign of Palmer and Flynn is that the prisoners were held, of all places, at Ellis Island.
1: That's right. This place, you know, 40% of us in this country have ancestors who entered the country through Ellis Island. It was a place of hope, and we've all seen pictures of the the Great Hall of Ellis Island, as it was called, the room where prisoner uh, immigrants carrying bundles of clothing and tattered suitcases and so on were hopefully coming into this country. But by 1919, it had become a place for prisoners uh, who were being held awaiting deportation.
0: And under some very severe conditions, too. This was no easy detail to be on
1: Ellis Island as a prisoner. Not at all. Not at all. So these were the folks that uh, Palmer and Hoover were hoping to get rid of.
0: Yeah. And they, as you said, that one ship, the Buford, right, did actually set sail with a group of prisoners, including the famous
1: Emma Goldman, on it. But so that's... Let's... Wonderful scene that took place on that ship. Why a hundred people haven't written about it, I don't know. But... J. Edgar Hoover, who really made all of the arrangements, invited a number of members of Congress along to see this first big deportation. And they were the, the Buford, the ship on which these radicals were deported from the United States, they didn't want to risk having it tied up at a wharf because then people might gather on shore to demonstrate. So they had it. Anchored in New York Harbor, not far from where the Verrazano Narrows Bridge is today. And they put these deportees on a tugboat towing a barge, which left uh, Ellis Island in the middle of the night to take them to the ship at its anchorage. And the women deportees, Emma Goldman and a couple of others, were allowed to go into the kitchen of the tugboat where it was warmer than it was outside because this was the middle of winter, December. And in the kitchen, she had a confrontation with J. Edgar Hoover, and we know exactly what they said because one of these members of Congress was there to hear the conversation and reported it uh, on the floor of Congress some days later. And when you're a writer trying to build a book based on characters, when you have two of your characters actually talking to each other and having a conversation where somebody Makes a note of what they said. It's just a writer's dream.
0: And what did she say?
1: Hoover said to her, haven't I given you a fair deal, Miss Goldman? And she said, uh, yes, you have, but we shouldn't expect from somebody more than what he has the ability to give. Mm -hmm. So she got in a sort of final dig there.
0: So let's talk a little bit about some of the dissenters, and then I want to talk about the draft evaders, because these were people who were treated very harshly. So among the dissenters that I'd like to talk a little bit about is Robert La
1: Follette and Eugene Depp.
0: So can you tell us about each of them, please?
1: Yeah, Robert La Follette was a Republican senator from Wisconsin. And remember, in these days, there were progressive and conservative factions in both the Republican and Democratic parties. Uh, La Follette was a Republican senator from Wisconsin, who was the most outspoken senator against the idea of the United States joining the First World War. And when Wilson asked Congress to declare a war, and was enthusiastically applauded by most of the members of Congress and the Senate gathered there, La Follette stood quietly with his arms crossed, uh, chewing gum, and not applauding. And he asked, you know, if this is a war to make the world safe for democracy, why aren't we demanding freedom for Ireland, for India, for Egypt? These territories, of course, were colonies of our ally, uh, Great Britain, which had no intention of granting democracy to them. He was very outspoken. He continued talking in this vein. He began receiving nooses in the mail. He was hanged in effigy on the campus of his alma mater, the University of Wisconsin. All but two members of its faculty signed a statement denouncing him. He was expelled from a club he belonged to in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, The Senate opened an investigation about whether he should be expelled from that body. So he had a very rough time. The other dissenter you mentioned, Eugene Debs, was a very saintly, much beloved man, the five-time socialist candidate for president of the United States, who was, I think, particularly threatening to the Wilson administration because he was deeply committed to nonviolence and to the electoral process. So they couldn't write him off as one of these uh, crazy, violent anarchists. Debs had won 6% of the popular vote for president in 1912. And in 1916 election, he had not run for president because he believed the claim of the Wilson campaign that Wilson would keep the United States out of war. When the U.S. went to war, Debs was devastated. And before long, he spoke out. Uh, strongly against the war and in favor of people who are resisting the draft. And after a speech he gave in a park in Kenton, Ohio, in 1918, he was promptly arrested under the Espionage Act, put on trial before a judge who just happened to be the former law partner of Wilson's Secretary of War, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Uh, And like many war critics... He was still in prison two years after the war ended in November 1920, when he received nearly a million votes for president while an inmate in the federal penitentiary in Atlanta.
0: This was an interesting period, though, for socialists, too. I get it was Warren Harding who spared him of the rest of his sentence when Wilson leaves office and Harding takes over. Harding commuted the sentence of many. That's
1: right. Yeah, we usually don't think of Harding as one of the great American presidents, but actually on some of these issues, he was pretty good. He became president in March of 1921, and he was under pressure, there were demonstrations outside the White House, to release these political prisoners that we spoke of earlier, many of whom were still in jail. And Rather slowly, he started to do so, and by the end of the year, he released Debs, and not only did that, but invited Debs to stop in and visit him in Washington on Debs' way home. Debs did so, and when he was leaving Harding's office, he told reporters, you know, I've run for the White House five times, but this is the first time I've actually gotten here. Uh, Harding had remitted Debs' sentence but had not pardoned him. So that meant he still didn't have his full citizenship rights back, such as the right to vote. And a reporter asked him how he felt about this. And Debs said, now I am only a citizen of the world, which I think is how we should all feel.
0: In fact, Debs, what got him indicted in large measure was a speech And he was talking about those who were promoting the First World War. And that which, as I said, mostly got him indicted was in the speech he said, and I'll quote him, they have always taught you that it is your patriotic duty to go to war and to have yourselves slaughtered at their command. But in all the history of the world, you, the people, never have had a voice in declaring war.
1: And that was enough
0: to send him to jail. for for 10 years. What was interesting about this period was, before we transitioned to organized labor, that in this 1912 to 14-ish period, there are about a thousand socialist candidates who were elected at the state and local level, right? Including mayors of Milwaukee, Toledo, Pasadena, Schenectady, with Oklahoma being among the largest uh, socialist strongholds in America. Go figure. it's,
1: It's quite amazing. Oklahoma and New York, an odd combination. There were at one point 10 socialist members of the lower house of the New York state legislature. Which
0: in fact, though, let's tell this story because were they not expelled?
1: Uh, actually in 1920, when there were five socialist members of the lower house of the New York state legislature, they were expelled. And both Republicans and Democrats, with just, I believe, two dissenting votes among the Democrats, voted to expel them. Simply because they were socialists, right? Simply because they were socialists. Because really, one of the things that the American political establishment was trying to do in this period was to crush the Socialist Party, which had shown surprising strength in the municipal elections of the fall 1917. After the U.S. had entered the war, socialists won, which, remember, was a party committed against the U.S. joining the war. Socialists won more than 20 percent of the vote in 14 of the country's largest cities. Uh, more than 30 percent of several of them won 22 percent in New York City, the largest. And the Wilson administration was terrified by this because they held the House of Representatives in Washington, only by a very tiny margin, rather like today. And the thought that an anti-war party, if it elected just a few representatives, might hold the balance of power was very frightening to them. And I think that's one of the things that led the Wilson administration to do everything it could to crush the party, which they did by shutting down its many newspapers under the Censorship uh, law and by arresting many of its leading figures, like uh, Eugene Debs, Kate Richards O'Hare, who was the most popular woman uh, orator in the party, many former socialist candidates for the Senate, House of Representatives, governor in various states. There were enough prominent socialists imprisoned during this period that if they had all been in one prison, they could have had a real party Congress. And I think one effect of it was to crush the party. You know, the socialism in the United States was never the kind of large-scale popular movement that it was in much of Western Europe. But had the party not been so ruthlessly crushed in this period and had it continued to exist as a real force in American politics, it might have pushed the two major parties a little more in the direction of having things like the stronger social safety net and comprehensive national health care system that exists in Canada and most of Western Europe today.
0: Indeed, I think the first socialist elected to Congress comes from Wisconsin, this Victor Berger. If I remember. Right.
1: Victor right. Berger, and uh, he served... A couple of terms and was expelled from Congress, then reelected, and they expelled him again.
0: Again, being expelled for thoughts and beliefs that he held, not for, for bad acts. Right. We'll leave for people to continue in their education to read about the Farm Labor Party and the coalition that was formed, which was a very interesting period of progress in the United States. And I'd like to instead turn to i think you wrote that war is good for business and business is good for the us and so we've talked a lot about the attack on the socialist leaders debs and goldman and uh, and others for their speaking and their thoughts but we had another war going on here which was the war against organized labor and particularly The International Workers of the World, known as the Wobblies. So can you take us through this period of of your book?
1: Sure. You know, the battle for the right to organize a labor union has been a long one in American history, and it was a very bitter one for many years. I think I mentioned at the beginning that, you know, dozens of workers were killed each year in labor strife. The government was particularly afraid of the Wobblies, the International Workers of the World, who, even though they were quite small, they never constituted more than about 5% of American workers. They were the country's most radical union. They had wild, wide appeal outside their own numbers, attracting many middle class supporters as well, in part because they had the best music, the best posters, And a very attractive ideology where they said everyone is welcome in this union, men and women, black and white, immigrant and native born, which was not true for many mainstream labor unions. Uh, They were influential in many strikes that shook the country in 1917. The government was determined to crush them, even though the union hadn't taken a stand against the war, uh, the Government knew that almost all of its individual members were quite hostile to the war effort, and it set out to to crush this the i w w as an organization in the fall of nineteen seventeen there were raids around the country all forty four offices of the Union were raided. This was a legal organization uh, it was It was not banned as an organization, but they raided all its officers they arrested. Hundreds of its members put them on trial in several mass trials. One trial, which began with more than 100 defendants in Chicago in 1918, remains actually the largest criminal uh, civilian trial in American history. Every person on trial was found guilty on all counts. The judge passed out 807 years of prison time. And this organization was, in effect, crushed. You know, the government was hostile to organized labor in other ways as well. Even the very mainstream, moderate American Federation of Labor lost a million members in this period. The labor movement would not really revive until some 15 years later in the mid-1930s, when under the impact of the Depression and the Roosevelt administration, it was really able to come back to life in a big way.
0: This trial... In Chicago, the 110 defendant trial, the prominent wobbly leader, William D. Big Bill Haywood, went on on trial. And he was an interesting character who you can tell us a little bit about in these funny little footnotes in history. The judge who oversaw that trial, and by the way, there are 110-ish defendants, four defense attorneys were permitted. Yeah. So you had four defense attorneys defending 110 people in a trial that lasted way too short and a deliberation process that was even shorter. But the judge who was secretly meeting with the prosecutors before the trial began was Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who goes on to, you know, sort of ruin Major League Baseball, in my estimation. So talk a little bit about it, because it, it's it's a funny He
1: he got his name, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, because his father had been a a Civil War soldier who was wounded at the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain in Georgia. And he was somebody who had no use for radicals, no use for immigrants. Uh, As you said, Michael, he actually met with the prosecutors before the trial began to have a sort of confidential discussion. They were very glad they'd ended up with him as the judge. And he conducted this trial in a very strange way where he would wander around the courtroom, often leaving the bench. He invited various visiting VIPs to come and sit on the bench with him on occasion, Uh, a U.S. Senator, a well-known actor who was playing in a play uh, in Chicago. And then after four months of uh, testimony, the jury you know here here you had by that point the number of defendants had shrunk i think it was 97 at the end because some of the cases got severed they all faced four counts so whatever 97 times four is there were that many you know close to 400 verdicts that uh, had to be deliberated upon and you would think there might be different verdicts for different people because Some of the people on trial were national leaders of the organization, like Big Bill Haywood. Uh, some, one was a Harvard dropout. There were others who were mere foot soldiers, but the jury deliberated only an hour, found everybody guilty on all counts. And that's when Kennesaw Mountain Landis found, you know, passed out 807 years of prison time and Big Bill Haywood, very colorful guy. He had been a saloon card dealer in his youth in the, in the frontier country in Utah, and he wrote to his friend, the journalist John Reed, he said, the big game is over and we lost. The other fellow had cut, shuffle, and deal.
0: Another of the famous ones, and who is immortalized in the the song by Joan Baez, I Dreamed I Saw Joe Hill last night. People want to know who that song is about, Joe Hill, another wobbly
1: brought to Trial and convicted. That's right. In an earlier trial in 1915, Joe Hill had been a songwriter and wrote many of the best songs that the Wobblies had. And he was uh, convicted on much disputed evidence of murder and shot by a firing squad in Utah in 1915.
0: A lot of this had to do with the efforts to organize coal miners and the thought was that by organizing workers, they were slowing down the means of production that was necessary for the war. And therefore they were anti-American and posed a threat to
1: national security. That's the sort of the, th- the through line, right? That's, that's right. I mean, there had been a series of major strikes, you know, throughout the early part of the 20th century, but The moment the U.S. entered the war, any worker on strike in almost any industry could be accused of impeding the war effort. And miners were particularly at risk because, you know, coal was used in war industries and and metal was used in war industries. In the summer of uh, 1917, for example, There were several thousand copper miners on strike in a town called Bisbee, Arizona, because there had been a boom in copper mining on account of the war industries. And these miners felt that this was not being reflected in the salaries they were getting. Inflation was climbing much higher than their wages. They went on strike. And early one morning before dawn, uh, a sheriff's posse of some 2,000 people Staffed in part by local business people, people who worked for the mining companies, swept through town, roused these guys out of bed at gunpoint, told them to go back to work. And more than a thousand miners who refused to go back to work were loaded onto a long train of freight cars and cattle cars that still had several inches of manure in the bottom of them taken under armed guard 180 miles through the desert to New Mexico and locked up in an army stockade. So this was the one of many instances of suppression of strikes during this period. And this continued uh, after the war as well. And I had mentioned uh, Attorney General Palmer, who was campaigning hard for the Democratic nomination for, for president, The leading candidate for the Republican nomination for president up to the last minute was a general, General Leonard Wood, who was a person who led U.S. Army uh, troops against steel strikers in Indiana, coal strikers in West Virginia, and hoped to make that sort of one of the foundations of his presidential campaign.
0: Another thing that occurred during this period, which still has legs today, is private vigilante groups, so-called detective agencies like the American Protective League, sort of found a birth and were sort of the arm of the Department of Justice throughout
1: this period. Is that right? It is. I mean, the the ancestors of groups we see today, like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, Really, one of their ancestors was this group you mentioned, the American Protective League, which had, by the end of 1917, a quarter of a million members. It was chartered by the Department of Justice. It was composed mainly of men, and I should say they were all white men, uh, who were a little bit too old for the Army, but who wanted to feel that they were fighting the war at home. And that meant doing things like roughing up anti-war demonstrators. I can actually read you something that a American Protective League member wrote about uh, suppressing an anti-war demonstration in Grant Park, Chicago in 1917. Here's what, what one of these guys wrote. Three of us worked our way to the speaker's stand when one particularly vicious orator began to incite the mob I jumped on the platform and grabbed him. A few seconds later, I landed on the heads of the people in front. My two companions rushed to me, and shoulder to shoulder, we battled for our lives. Wagons full of police with riot clubs arrived, and we managed to arrest the leaders. So they worked together with the police to suppress anti-war demonstrations and to round up young men who might be resisting the draft. They staged what they called slacker raids in major cities around the country, arresting by the tens of thousands uh, young men who couldn't produce a draft card and holding them, sometimes for up to a couple of days, until you know their families could find them and bring the draft papers. And a small percentage of these folks were, in fact, trying to evade the draft, and they were shipped off to the Army. So it was tremendously appealing to belong to the American Protective League because. You got to wear a silver badge like that of a police officer. You got to feel you were fighting for your country, and you didn't have the risks and obligations that a soldier at the front has. And you could go home for dinner every night. Mm. The last sort of substantive group I want
0: to talk about, and then I want to have you conclude by reading me something, and that is, Matters of race, because during this period, racial terror was really at an all-time high in the United States. And Wilson was indifferent at best to what was going on. And these vigilante groups, like the American Protective League, were also involved in not just rounding up draft resistors and fighting the Wobblies, but they were part of this racial war of terror being perpetrated. So can we talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. If you roll back the clock to this period, one of the things we see was that the Great Migration was beginning. Black Americans were starting to leave the South. Why? Because most of them uh, had no other option there but to work in miserable, low-paid jobs like, you know, being picking cotton as sharecroppers, uh, for example. Also, they were in a region which you know maintained its version of law and order by a steady terrifying uh, rule of lynch mobs there was often one lynching a week in the american south during these years so starting around 1910 black americans began moving north and west in the great migration moving into uh cities in the north where they often found themselves very unwelcome you know, white people felt you know they lowered the property values if they moved into a neighborhood, also because they were deeply impoverished, they were often willing to work for lower wages than white workers were were then earning and because they were desperate for work, union busting employers often ha- hired them as strike breakers and since many unions wouldn't let black members enter the union this sort of further increased racial antagonisms. Then this got magnified when the war ended because in 1919, roughly 4 million men were released from the U.S. military, came home uh, looking for work, but the factories that had been making uh, ships and tanks and guns and planes and machine guns and so forth during this period had shut down because the war was over. So, You know, some 400,000 returning black soldiers and nearly 4 million returning white soldiers were competing for jobs. And it was that summer of 1919 that saw really the worst racial violence we've seen in the United States since the uh, immediate aftermath of slavery. It's usually in the history books as race riots, but they should really be called white riots because in virtually all cases, these were... You know, mob violence started by white people and hundreds of blacks were killed. We don't know the full death toll. It's believed to be in the high hundreds. The reason we don't know the full death toll is that the worst violent incidents of this summer took place in a town called Elaine, Arkansas, where hundreds of black people were killed by local vigilantes and by federal troops. Black people who were trying to organize a sharecropper's union, their bodies were simply tossed into the Mississippi River and floated downstream. That's why we don't know the full death toll.
0: Mm -hmm. There's so much more in this book, especially with respect to how the end of the First World War and the Treaty of Paris and the failure of German citizenry to understand how they ended up losing the war set the stage for World War II. But we're going to let that be a story untold by us, but left to hopefully prospective readers of the book. And I'd like to instead conclude by asking you a question and perhaps having you read something to us, if you wouldn't mind. Some say you write that the period of 1917 to 21, when it came to an end, the country turned a corner. And I would like you, if you have the book handy, to read to us the very last paragraph of the book and then answer the question of what do you think the lessons are that your readers and all of us should take from this magnificent book of yours?
1: Well, here's the very last paragraph of American Midnight. To keep these dark forces from overwhelming American society once again will require a lot from us knowledge of our history for one thing, so we can better see the danger signals and the first drumbeats of demagoguery, brave men and women both inside and outside the government, like those who spoke the truth and stuck to their principles more than a hundred years ago, a more equitable distribution of wealth so that there will not be. Tens of millions of people economically losing ground and looking for scapegoats to blame. A mass media far less craven towards those in power than it was in 1917 to 21. And above all, a vigilant respect for civil rights and constitutional safeguards to save ourselves from ever slipping back into the darkness again.
0: It's a great last paragraph. Is there anything, Adam, in addition to that, which really Says it all. But is there anything else that we should, as we conclude our interview today,
1: take as a lesson? I think that about covers it, uh, Michael. What I hope people take away from American Midnight is a sense of how fragile democracy can be. Democracy is a wonderful thing. But if we're not careful, it can vanish in the blink of an eye. Just think what happened on January 6th, 2021. If that mob had gotten into the Capitol a little bit sooner, before security people had gotten those senators and members of the House out of the way, you know, we might have seen legislators killed. We might have seen a great deal of violence. That day could have unfolded very, very differently. Democracy's fragile. We have to always remember that. The book is called American Midnight, The
0: Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. I'm very grateful to you, Adam, for spending time with us and more grateful for you to have written this book that I think should be required reading in all of our American high schools.
1: Well, thank you, Michael. I hope you can make it required reading in all American high schools.
0: (laughs) I'm going to try.
1: Good. Okay.
0: All right. Thanks again.
1: Well, this was great. And boy, I wish every interviewer was as thoroughly prepared as you obviously are. And uh, anyway, it was lovely talking with you. I sense that we see the world the same way. And I hope we get to meet in person someday. That would be great. Thanks again. All right. Take care. You too.
0: That said, is produced by Compro.com and the Museum of Public Relations, theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.